Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. You find Reich to be a heavy-set, ruddy, brown-haired man of 50, wearing a long white coat and sitting at a huge desk. Between periods of training students in his theories and putting patients into orgone accumulators, he will tell you how unutterably rotten is the underlying character of the average individual walking the streets and how, in the room across the hall where he works on his patients, he peels back their presentable surfaces to expose the corrupted second layer of human personality. For the masses of the people, says Reich, are endemically neurotic and sexually sick. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And our regular host, Robert Lamb, is not with us today. He is out of the office, so Christian and I are flying solo. But I want to identify the source of that quote I just read. It was a sort of a brief character sketch given by one Mildred Edie Brady, and it was written in an article called The Strange Case of Wilhelm Reich, published in the New Republic on May 26th, 1947. Wow. And so, as you can guess, we're going to be talking about Reich today, and we're going to be talking about orgone, orgone accumulators, cloud busters, the whole shebang. Now, Christian, this is a subject that was pretty new to me. I had no idea about this whole strange subculture of uh, what might you call it? Psychoanalytic, sexual, alternative physics. Yeah, uh, I like that. That's a good application. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what's the acronym for that? I don't know. <laughs> you, you guys in the audience figure that one out. It's O-R-G-O-N-E. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. But so if you are as unfamiliar as I was coming in, maybe we can get a little bit acquainted with the subject from Christian's story of his personal experience with the the orgone energy. And well, that makes it sound like I <laughs> like I had a little bit more of a transcendental experience than I did. No, I mean um, that you, you went to the estate in Maine of yeah. Dr. Wilhelm Reich, didn't you? Yeah, uh this would have been oh, 10, 12 years ago. Uh my wife and I went on vacation to Rangeley, Maine and we rented a cabin on the Organon property that uh, his estate still owns. You said Organon. Yeah, that's the name of the facility. Um, so Organon, I guess, is technically the entire plot of land. I think it's 175 acres, this estate that he left up in Maine. Uh-huh. Huge. Uh, it's gorgeous. If you've ever been up uh, to Rangeley, Maine, it's very lots of forest uh, right on a lake. Um, first morning we were there, we saw a deer right outside our cabin, like that kind of thing. Is there a Stephen King kind of vibe? Any, uh, uh any ancient, I mean, it fear, has fear eating powers from space. <laughs> maybe, th- maybe that's, uh, where Reich got his inspiration from. But, you know, honestly, it's just like a very sort of down to earth nature experience. And, um, we went there because I had read about Reich, uh, and read about his theories and read about, uh, Orgone accumulators and cloudbusters and, uh, had seen, I don't know if you've ever seen Kate Bush's video for cloudbusting, uh, but. Wait, what? You what are don't, you talking you, about? You don't know about this? The, the musician Kate Bush. Yeah, Kate Bush has a song called Cloudbusting from the album, uh, Hounds of Love. Uh-huh. And, uh, it is, it's a great song. And the video is shot by Terry Gilliam and stars her as Willem Reich's son and Donald Sutherland as Willem Reich. And it is, essentially like a, a 
abstract version of the story of, of Reich building a cloud buster and then eventually being imprisoned and dying in prison. I am extremely tempted to stop recording right now and go watch I this. I thought you knew about this. No, I, I would, didn't. I would have mentioned it beforehand. Yeah, that's one of the, like, I think, hallmark pop culture moments for Reich. Now, if you're already lost in all of the bizarre references to things like cloud busters and orgone energy, don't worry. We're going to get to we're that. We're going to explain it. And yeah. explain what the deal is with it. But, but Christian, please continue. So, so you went to Organon, this big, beautiful estate in Maine. And, uh, you, it's like a countryside estate. There's a lot of nature, but it's there's very also rural. C- countryside is like, it's in the middle of nowhere. Uh-huh. I mean, Rangeley itself is a small town. And then I'd say Organon is like, Maybe five miles outside of Rangeley and, uh. But th- there are buildings there too, right? Uh, yeah, well, Organon, the, the main, I guess, uh, observatory slash home is a pretty big house slash mansion thing. Now, it, now it's a museum. There's also a bookstore on the property. And then when I was there, there were three cabins that you could stay in. Uh-huh. And so you said observatory. Now, I think most people would assume when you say there's an observatory out in the country somewhere, they're thinking an astronomy observatory. Right, yeah. Where you look at the stars and you can look at the planets and the moon and stuff like that. But that's not the kind of observatory we're talking about, is it? No. Um, this is an orgone It's been a while. I don't remember there being any telescopes <laughs> there. But it, it's, it's, uh, yeah, ostensibly he was studying the effects of Oregon while he lived there and his students, I, I guess I'm putting quotations around students, um, cause I don't know that they're necessarily getting any like, uh, accredited degrees from studying under him, but, uh, they, you know, they, they worked on these devices and studying Oregon and studying, uh, the effects of, uh, releasing orgasmic potential. <laughs> I I don't one of the things I don't want to do in this episode is go into a lot of speculation about the sexual antics that probably happened at Organon. Uh-huh. Uh although there has been plenty of speculation about Reich and his followers and his sex life. I think it's kind of a I've never seen the TV show Masters of Sex, but I I I imagine that it's kind of like that sort of world, right? Where like he he and his followers saw themselves on the brink of like uh blowing up a, a sexual revolution uh and they were like maybe 20 or 30 years early and blurring it, the lines <clears throat> between masters of sex and masters of the universe <laughs> <laughs> well he did claim that he shot down ufo's with a cloudbuster well and also masters of the universe in the sense that he was proposing this substance orgone as a kind of cosmic energy or or mm-hmm. a universe permeating force, a kind of life force that explained all of these strange things about us. It's sort of one of those uh, answers to every question, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I saw uh, in one of the um, pieces that we read for this, I saw somebody compare it to George Lucas's vision of the force in Star Wars, and it's a lot like that if the force was released by having sex or masturbating. It's more like the force in the Star Wars prequels because it's based on tiny animals in your body. The, yeah, there, there is, uh, he sort of had his own version of midi-chlorines. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well let's back up for a second here for the listeners because we just dropped him in the deep end. Uh, let's explain who Willem Reich is very briefly and then what we're gonna do is we're gonna get into his scientific theories over the years before he died. Okay. Um, what I do want to establish up front is that we're going to be very brief about the history stuff. There's a lot that could be gone into with it. 
uh, in terms of conspiracy theories or like I was mentioning earlier, the sort of like rumors and uh, of sexual antics uh, and impropriety and, and also about Reich in, in general, just kind of not being so great of a person in real life. Um, or at least a very unprofessional psychoanalyst. Yeah. And, and I've read plenty of accounts of that, but for the purposes of this show, I think we should stay focused for one episode just on who he was and, and the, uh, and the quote unquote science of, of orgone and, uh, accumulators and cloud busting. Okay. All right. So Reich is born in Austria, Hungary in 1897, but what is now known as Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, and there's lots of stories about him having a sexually complex childhood. I don't want to go a ton into it. Uh, and there's not a lot of ways to confirm any of this. But uh, there's speculation by his daughter, of all people, that he was abused by his parents sexually. Uh-huh. And his mother committed suicide, didn't she? That's correct. Yeah. Um, he grows up uh, and becomes an associate and student of Sigmund Freud and studies and works with Freud in Vienna at the psychoanalytic polyclinic. Yeah. And the interesting thing here is that Reich began his career, whatever you might think of Freud and psychoanalysis today, he began his career in a circle of psychoanalysis that was at least respected at the time. This was considered a, uh, a legitimate frontier of science and human inquiry. Yeah, that was my impression. And it was sort of honorable to be working with Freud at the time, I think, at least within the discipline. Yeah. So he the 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 thing I wanted to emphasize is that he wasn't always regarded as a kook by everybody. (laughs) Yeah. And and also, uh, I don't know necessarily that there are some people today that regard him as a kook. Oh, certainly. Well, he he obviously has his followers. followers, But I mean, um, he was a respected member of the psychoanalytic community and he held leadership positions in like professional organizations. Yeah. So he, he was a guy who worked in psychoanalysis, was educated by the, the who were the people who were considered the top minds in the field at the time. My understanding is he had a medical degree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit here because while he's in Europe, there's a lot of drama. Yeah. But a lot it, of a lot of conflicts with political parties. He ran into trouble with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. He ran into trouble with the communists. He I, ran into trouble with Freud. Yeah. They had a falling out. Yes. And then eventually. So he moved from country to country in Europe for a while, always kind of like getting uh, I wouldn't say getting run out. I, I don't no. know if that's necessarily the case, yeah. but the things maybe not going his way. In a certain country, and then he'd move to another one. Uh, and eventually he ended up moving from Europe to the United States in what year was it? 1939. Uh-huh. Uh, and he taught at the New School uh, for Social social Research in New York City. Uh, I don't know how long that lasted for, but he did, you know, come to the United States and, and work as a teacher, I think, in psychoanalysis. Um, but eventually he goes up to Maine to Rangeley and he purchases the estate, the Oregonon estate builds his institute, his observatory there, uh, and that's where he's buried. While he held that land, and he, uh, there's also more drama regarding, like, his family and wives and children and stuff like that that I don't want to get into, um, but uh, there was significant problems with him and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Yeah, he got into trouble with the U.S. government, and some of this would be following that article I read at the beginning, or at least the quote from at the beginning by Mildred Brady, and in that article, Brady addresses some of uh, Reich's theories and his following and expresses concern that Reich has not been sufficiently 
condemned by the psychoanalytic community that he used to be a part of once he started putting out these strange theories that which we're going to get to in a minute yeah. theories like orgone and the the orgasm theory and cloud busting and sh- she had some concern that he was sort of selling these services and theories to the lay public who didn't know any better and the scientific community or the psychoanalytic community, whether you consider that scientific or not, was not doing a sufficient job of letting the public know that these theories were not an accepted part of current science. Right. So the FDA gets involved partly uh, because of the, the, I guess, spotlight that she puts on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is eventually tried in contempt of court for violating the Food and Drug Act. And the story goes like this, that one of his associates, associates moved an orgone accumulator, and we'll explain to you what that is. I want to get through the history of this guy first before we dive into the weirdness. Um, moved an orgone accumulator across state lines, and that <laughs> violated the Food and Drug Act. Like uh, it's a cargo container full of barrels of whiskey and yeah, prohibition or yeah, or a, yeah, or ricin or something, yeah. right? Like it's like a, a really dangerous, bad thing. So they uh, arrest Reich and sentence him to two years in prison. He spends his time in prison, and just before his sentence is up, he dies. Yeah, in 1957. Mm-hmm. And so this is where a lot of the I can see why a lot of conspiracy theories come out, which is that. The U.S. government unjustly arrested him, put him in prison, and when he was trying to do things like cure cancer, right? Yeah, and you hear this kind of uh, conspiracy theory tone from a lot of Reich's supporters today, but also from Reich himself at the time. I've listened to home recordings that Reich made at Organon where he's talking into a tape recorder, and it sounds exactly like outtakes from a Limetown episode where it's just a very creepy ambiance, and and he's talking about how everyone's set against him, and they're all out to destroy his theories when all he wants to do is help people and they just can't open their minds. So one can hardly blame his followers from having a kind of a conspiracy theory mode of thinking about the government's persecution yeah. of him. And we we might want to be fair and say that the despite the fact that Reich was promoting a lot of theories that were clearly pseudoscience, a bunch of garbage, I think there is a legitimate case to be made that he was treated a little too harshly by the government. He yeah. he kind of didn't get a fair shake. Yeah, I mean I mean I'm curious about the like inner details of what actually was behind this FDA shakeup, but yeah, it seems to me I I would agree that it seems unjust to put a guy in prison for 2 years for building essentially like a telephone box filled with cotton and driving it across straight lines. He didn't yeah. even drive it across. Lines. I, a, a, a person who worked for him. I mean, presumably the dangerous part of it is that he was allegedly selling this as a cure to people who needed help for various yeah. things like cancer or for psychological trauma. And it's, it's hard to know to what extent he was really benefiting off of other people's misinformation about yeah. how likely this was to help them. One thing we've had trouble tracking down is where, where his money came from. Uh-huh. Now, he clearly came from a, a fairly upper class, well-to-do family in Europe, but also um, it's not quite clear how much, you know, how he, how he was getting paid for his services or for his research. If he was getting donations, if he wasn't, he himself said, right, that he didn't take any uh, payment. Yeah, he's like, I treat people for cancer with orgone accumulators, and I don't accept any payment for it. I uh, And yet he had a 175-acre uh, estate in Rangeley, Maine, right on a lake. And, of course, I mean, I guess 
at the time it was probably worth less than it is now, but uh, <laughs> it, it's still pretty extravagant. Well, anyway, even after he died, his legacy continues. He wasn't just yeah. forgotten about. He still has followers today. You can go on YouTube uh-huh. and look at people who are talking about Orgone Energy and about how it's going to fix their problems. So there's a little bookstore on the estate, and I presumably all of this is run by the Wilhelm Reich Infant Trust, which if you go online, there, there, there's a whole site devoted to this, uh, and you can buy his books and videos and all that stuff there. But this is sort of like the physical manifestation of it. Uh, and as far as I could tell, it was, it was basically run by, by, you know, people from the town of Rangeley who were just taking a paycheck to like give tours of the museum, uh-huh. uh, and then like run the bookstore. I didn't get the sense that they were like old followers of his that have like stayed on the estate for years or anything <laughs> like that. Like that was not the, uh, the, the, the vibe at all. It very much just felt like this was like a job. For them, uh-huh. um, you could tell because they had way too much orgone accumulated. Yeah, I mean their armor was all over the place. Yeah. But no. um, so, but there's a lot of books by him, and they're kept in print by two publishers. One is the American College of Organomy, uh, and the other one is a journal called the Journal of Organomy. And the, these are, <laughs> you know, purportedly scientific uh, uh, publications. Um, I imagine that their uh, their publications are not widely accepted in the medical literature. I I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I did when I was there, though. I did buy one of his books, and I bought. At, this tells you how long ago it was. I bought a VHS tape, nice um, of of what you watched yesterday, which is a YouTube video documentary in the loosest terms. Uh, well, yeah, about, about his history. Yeah, I, I watched one of these documentaries that I think it was produced by the Infant Trust. It was mm-hmm. clearly a pro Wilhelm Reich documentary. Yeah. And it framed all of all of the criticisms of his work as uh, distortions and fabrications. And it uh, was very defensive in tone. And, and uh, it was kind of a it was kind of a hagiography, like a yeah. portrait of a great man who was unfairly treated. Well, I can say, you know, I was there in my mid twenties and I was certainly, while I don't, I didn't necessarily believe in Orgone, I was pretty fascinated with his history and just these ideas in general. Uh, and, and so, you know, I was willing, yeah, I bought this video and I took it back to Boston and showed it to my, a bunch of my friends and was like, can you believe this happened? Can you believe this happened to this guy? And, and to be fair, like I'm still, you know, uh, pretty upset it's it's unfair that this guy went to jail and died in jail you know but uh well maybe maybe we can have a discussion about that yeah but, yeah. but but you know the the stuff about the cloud busting and everything else is like a little uh and my friends right rightfully were like uh this is weird and <laughs> um but so i still hold on to that vhs today <laughs> Although now it's on YouTube and anybody can go watch it, right? You just go and type in Wilhelm Reich Orgone and it shows up. Oh yeah. Um, but so, uh, the, the publications that are still out there now in this journal, they were started by a psychiatrist called Ellsworth Baker. And, uh, like Joe said earlier, there are some Reichian believers and practitioners that are still out there today. Uh, and they occasionally get publicity. You occasionally see some of this stuff pop up in the news, like, you know, usually under the headline of like, you know, sex energy cures something or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's pretty clickbaity stuff. I'm surprised I'm surprised that it hasn't made the rounds again in the last couple of years, you know. Uh maybe like on 
I don't know, like BuzzFeed or something like that. They would probably love a good Wilhelm Reich story. It has the S word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Exactly. Um, and in the 90s, uh, Reichians were even conducting research into how a pregnant mother's emotions can affect her newborn's delivery and subsequent development. So, mm-hmm. like, things that happen to your mother while you are in the womb can influence you. Yeah, and ideas like that taken in isolation, like like if you don't know that somebody's coming at this with an orgone slant to yeah. it, uh, that could seem like a perhaps legitimate thing to research. I mean, Absolutely. I, I consider yeah. it could be possible, and you could test this in a controlled setting uh, to see, okay, what if we just alter variables uh, causing sad or happy experiences for pregnant women? How do their children <laughs> turn out? Now, yeah. I mean, It'd be a longitudinal ethics, study for sure. The ethics of that might be questionable. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that seems like a thing that would be possible to study maybe. So in preparing for this episode, obviously we didn't have the time to go and read the entire history of the Journal of Organomy, mm-hmm. but I did pull one article uh, by a guy, uh, I don't know, his first name is H. And uh, his last name was Chavis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was published in the 90s. So this I, this was sort of like my experience with reading a Reikian practitioner in the 90s, their, their sort of outlook. And uh, he claimed in the article that he couldn't list the data or observations that have been made about Orgone because there wasn't enough space paper-wise in the journal for him to account for all of them. So he just didn't list any of them. He didn't list any. There were none. So this is why many papers uh, that we, especially that we read for, for the show, uh, have literature reviews. So mm. you go in, you read the literature that's in the field, and then you write, you know, a summary of what the literature has, has uh, come up with so far about this particular topic. And you link back to, or cite those sources, right? Um, that way people can go, okay, if I want to know more about this and track it down, they can go find those other sources and and maybe replicate them, right? Mm-hmm. So that was not in this piece. Uh, I'd, I'd also say the language within it is weirdly cultish. Yeah, one of the things I observed in that Wilhelm Reich documentary I watched was that the language, the, st- the sort of style and presentation and tone of it was very similar to materials I've seen produced by the Church of Scientology concerning the life of L. Ron Hubbard. They yeah. have a bunch of uh, you know, uh, videos about L. Ron Hubbard just talking about what a great man he was and his, his wonderful ideas that were misunderstood and it, it was extremely familiar based on having watched those things before. Yeah. Uh, this is a theme that I think we're going to keep coming back to throughout this episode, but I see a lot of parallels between Reich and, and, uh, LRH as they like to call him in, uh-huh. in the church. Um, one specific example was Chavis used, um, language like moving toward the world and moving away from the world <laughs> to define scientific principles like mitosis or, uh, orgone in, in, uh, the, the argument that was presented in the paper or even like d- just the way that the human organism develops. Uh-huh. Um, and they were used as if these were like, you know, legit scientific community phrases that were accepted as we all understood what they meant. And it was very unclear what, what it actually meant. I think this is something that's always good to look out for. If you're on the, if you're on the lookout for pseudoscience, look for vague terminology. Especially when it concerns the, uh, the actual, like the crucial actions that are being described as, as causing an effect in some case. Yeah. When people use words like activity 
or something like that. You know, there's something that's very vague where you're not saying what's actually happening. You're just saying something goes on. Right. Well, all right. Real quick, there's two last little bits I want to get into uh, about his history, and then let's dive into his ideas. Okay. So his daughter, Ava Reich, actually toured the world demonstrating her father's ideas after his death. So she was a believer, although I think it, like, sort of evolved into something more along the lines of what we think of as bioenergetics today. Uh-huh. Uh, and his student, Alexander Lowen, went on to co-found the Institute of Bioenergetics, um, usually uh, people who work within that, uh, field are psychologists. They don't have a medical degree. Uh-huh. Um, but it was way more popular than organomy was like bioenergetics has, uh, still has like quite a following, I believe. Huh. Uh, I, it, when we talk about Reiki and practitioners and believers, I think it's a fairly small subset, uh-huh. uh, compared to, you know, some other alternative medicine types. Well, let's dive into the orgone zone. I think it's time to talk about the specifics like- of his theories and see uh, what's, what's all the big fuss about. Okay. So let's start with talking about his psychological theories, uh, mainly about armoring and what is sort of known as alternative medicine today. Okay. Um, so after he studied with Sigmund Freud, Reich theorized, this is sort of his general theory, uh, for this is that the physical Inability to surrender yourself to an orgasm is what causes neurosis in a person. Okay, so this sounds pretty similar to stuff that would already be propagated by people like Freud, right? That they hypothesize the origins of most or all psychological uh, difficulty in some kind of sexual trauma or sexual frustration, right? Yeah, although I think it should be noted here, and again, this gets into the like, uh, like really dramatic history of Reich's life. But Freud didn't necessarily agree with a lot of his ideas and took a good step back and distanced himself from Reich. Right. Uh, and that was kind of a shadow that loomed over Reich for the rest of his career. Uh-huh. Um, but maybe, so Reich saying sexual frustration, neurosis. Yeah. And then he or not just sexual it. frustration specifically. You, you can't get to orgasm. Right. You have neurosis. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and he extrapolated this outward, saying that this is actually what causes people to turn to fascism and authoritarianism. And he saw his mission as being to eradicate fascism. Now, keep in mind, you know, he was coming up with these theories in Europe during the rise of Nazism. And so I think he saw this as like kind of his only way to sort of combat what he saw as being uh, injustice. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he referred to. Uh, events like fascism as collective neurotic disorders. So he saw this as a process that began in the delivery room. This gets back to that research we were talking about that was in the 90s, right. uh, where medical staff let their unfeeling procedures in nature induce anxiety and anguish into newborn babies you know, the the kind of cold mechanical feeling of a hospital room. He saw that as being like our introduction to the world and immediately installing anxiety into us. Okay. And I think this is another thing where a lot of people might look at that idea today and say, well, there's maybe something to that. Have we medicalized birth too much? Right. Yeah. Where, where you have today, like uh, sort of alternative birth settings, right? You know, yeah. That, yeah this is certainly something that uh, is, has become popularized since his death. Um, so here, here's an example of sort of his trajectory for the orgasm neurosis combo. So let's say you're a child and you're abused, uh, and you would store the trauma from your abuse as muscular tension, 
Uh, and this would later in life, as when you're an adult, become chronic physical pain. And so he thought that um, because of the, the emotional trauma being stored as physical pain, this informed a person's character and their physical being, like how they carried themselves, how they looked even. Um, and he identified things like asthma, allergies, colitis, heart disease, high or low blood pressure, and cancer as all resulting from orgone blockages inside the body. So this is when orgone first starts creeping up into his his literature. I don't think he's necessarily uh, solidified the idea of it as being like this energy that binds the universe together yet, but but it's it's sort of part of the theory, right? Okay. Uh, and he sees that the only way to sort of get rid of this and what he calls the life formula is an essential, uh, constriction and release within the body that's in multiple organic processes, right? Mm. So uh, this again came from, uh, the article that was written by, uh, the, his, his follower in the nineties, things like mitosis and bladder function, right? There's <laughs> essential constriction and then release to that. Yeah. A buildup of tension and then a catharsis. Yeah. And so he saw that as being an example of that. This is, this permeates the universe. This is how it functions. And if you don't cathartically release the orgasm, you'll just keep building up this bad stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So in 1948, he publishes, this is, this is much later after he's in the U S he publishes a book called the function of the orgasm. And this is where he argues that under all of our layers of repressed muscle, uh, we have something ca- that he called orgiastic potency. <laughs> uh, and basically, our muscles and our deep tissues retain all these powerful memories of our previous emotional states. Uh, and the muscular repression is preventing us from achieving full orgasmic release and thus actually experiencing a full life. So is this explaining for him how a person could, in fact, be experiencing orgasms, but still not quite be getting the release? This sort of sounds like a way of reconciling the fact that uh, I'm saying the problem is people aren't having orgasms, but some people are, and they still have neuroses. Yeah, um, and I I think this is later in the notes, but he actually uh, like noted in his journals at one point that he had patients who um, would masturbate, and they would like be free of their neuroses for one week. Like he measured it uh-huh. and then all, their neuroses would creep back up unless they masturbated again. So yeah, it, it kept coming back around to uh, the orgasm as being sort of like this key component to, to freeing yourself. So he calls these blockages in our muscles armoring. And you might've heard that term before it's used in lots of other settings. Uh, I, I think we kind of use it just, in general everyday talk now, when you say like someone is armored, right? If, uh-huh. if, if I said, uh, uh, Donald Trump is armored, then you would, so you would sort of have an idea of what I meant that he's sort of guarded and reserved physically about his emotions. <laughs> Why right? would you say that about Donald? Trump? Oh, I don't think he's armored at all. I was just you using just him as a guy. Picked a random name. Let me tell you, Donald Trump is his orgone energy is off the charts. <laughs> he is completely free and released. Uh, so underneath, uh, Reich thought under all this armor is where our true core self is, right? The decent, uh-huh. loving, emotional being that we all essentially are. This sort of connects to that quote I read very at the very beginning where Brady talked about how Reich would peel away the layers of people, the, the yep. sick and neurotic layers to reveal the person underneath. Yeah. And I, I do want to note, like, I think that Reich meant well, right? Like, I think that he had altruistic intentions with his work. Um, 
given all the weird accounts that I've read that I, you know, about his, I guess, like taking advantage of patients or, or, or other things like, yeah, like along those lines, like I think he got, uh, misdirected from his original goals. Well, I think this happens with a lot of people like this where, <laughs> There, there's a cognitive dissonance because you look at them and you say, okay, sometimes it seems like they meant well, but then other times they took advantage of people. I mean, I, I think that makes sense. People are yeah. like that. People are a mixed bag. Uh, sometimes they're trying to do good and sometimes they're being opportunistic and selfish. That can happen within the same person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so his general therapy that he designs to deal with this theory, he calls it character analysis. And the idea is that he would help patients overcome their physical and respiratory blockages, uh, the, the things that are preventing them from experiencing pleasure in life, right? Mm-hmm. So he encourages therapists, uh, when he's teaching them about this, to observe their patients' bodies and facial language as indicators of their personality, um, things like the way that we sit, the way that we speak, the way that we walk, they all would provide clues to these therapists about what the inner self was, what actually was. Uh-huh. Uh, so then he moves from a therapeutic sort of, you know, traditional talking on the couch with a shrink setting to deep tissue massage as a way to get rid of this. Now, hold on. That sounds like it could be euphemistic. What What is it actually? No, there? I believe it's actual deep tissue massage. Okay. I, I, again, you know, there's been some insinuations that there was some hanky panky going on, but I believe that uh, they, they genuinely were giving massages to release mus- muscle tension. It was very painful. And the idea was that it would work the trauma out. And when this was done in conjunction with working with the client on their breathing, it would help them express emotions that they couldn't normally express, like anger or rage. And the release of such uh, musculature would create such an intense emotional release that they would finally feel bliss. They would be happy for, you know, one of the first times in their life. Uh, and Reich called this orgonautic streaming when you reached that state, when you released that uh, anger. Uh, and that what you would see as results in this during the massages would be sadness, longing, and unrestrained sobbing. Now, this is, a, again, this is another thing that went on to become, you know, quite, a, a, I guess, a discipline Within uh-huh. both uh, massage and and ideas like, well, like uh, primal scream therapy, for example, like other kind of like uh, alternative therapies in which people would release their their anger. Are there any particular words you're supposed to scream? I have no idea. Although I will say that uh, I just I'm sad that I didn't get to write this, but How Stuff Works Now just published an article this week about rage rooms. Have you heard about these? I saw the link. Yeah. So. Um, I'm fascinated and there's one here in Atlanta and I kind of want to go, like maybe we should do like an episode where we go there and, and record what happens. But basically they set up these rooms, uh, that for you to d- destroy in, in anger. So they give you like a baseball bat or, or whatever, and you just go around this room and smash everything up. Uh, and it's supposed to help you cathartically release, you know, your bad week or whatever. Um, uh, it sounds real fascinating to me. I'm curious about it, but I think I mean, the rage I, room would appeal to Reich. You know, intuitively, I'd say that that makes sense. Oh, yeah, you have catharsis. You get all of your rage out. You It's sort of like a pressure release valve in, in the Reichian kind of sense. You, yeah. you release the tension. But I think there's also a sense in which you can 
compound frustrations by expressing them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've definitely done that. Like, I, I think that there's a common thing I observe and sometimes in myself, but also in friends and people I care about where y- you make yourself madder about a topic by venting about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, Again, so like this is a thing that I think like we talked about this before the show, but I would really love for uh, the scientific community to actually dive into this stuff and just produce a, a lot of quantitative evidence about what you know how it works. Yeah, or um, the clinical psychology of of Reikianism. Yeah, or, or just like uh, yeah, like the different expressions of cathartic anger and or sadness uh, leading to happiness. Well, I'm sure there's already somebody of research on that. Yeah. And so that's fair. Like um, I had a hard time finding present day research that was connected to this because because I was using the search terms Reich or Orgone in my searches. But there does seem to be literature out there that's part of the general field of psychology about this. Okay, so getting back to Reich and his idea of psychology and therapy he argued that this had to be guided by what he referred to as a competent therapist, so probably somebody who trained under him, um, because the, the results could actually overwhelm a patient. This gets to what you're saying, that, like, you know, if you're venting in the wrong setting, that it can be bad, right? And he said that this could lead to suicide. That, this almost sounds like, uh, you know, you must confess to a priest ordained by the church itself. Yes, yeah, and there's and you cannot have a lay confessor. I think that I think there's a a good argument to be made that there's a bit of theology and and you know uh cultishness uh mm-hmm. about his theories and this is where it really starts kind of forming, right? Where it's like Are, you can only do it under my guidance and only I have the secret to the universe. Okay. Um so that his secret part of it was that the body was divided up into seven different segments, and this is where the armor formed. And the the segments included the eye, the oral, I'm assuming that means the mouth, <laughs> the neck, the chest, the diaphragm, the belly, and the pelvic segments. Uh okay. So it's arguable that Reich's theories led to many other theories and movements within the field of psychology or alternative medicine that we've talked about, right? Uh-huh. Primal scream therapy, we talked about that. Gestalt therapy, bioenergetics, Reiki, dozens of others, right? So there's lots of places that this went after he passed away. Uh, Ava Reich, his daughter, remember we were talking about her? Right. Uh, she had a particular kind of bioenergetic body work that was very different from her father's. It didn't involve the hard pressing. You mean body work, like physical manipulation yeah. of the body as psychological treatment? Yes. Yeah. Uh, hers was more like light they're called butterfly touching and stroking Ew, to release emotions term. and blocked energy. I'm imagining that it's a little bit like ASMR and okay. that like there's whispering and light. You, you know how like in ASMR, like there's sometimes like that touch a feather to a microphone or something like that. Yes. I imagine it's kind of along that, those lines. Oh, well, I mean, if there's anything to that, I just recommend coming up with a different name for it. Yeah, well, butterfly touching. Is I'm going in for a over. butterfly touching <laughs> session. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if you don't know what we're talking about with ASMR, uh, how stuff works has covered it in lots of different ways, but I believe that there's a stuff to blow your mind video about ASMR. Mm. There's definitely a brain stuff video about ASMR because uh, I wrote it. Jonathan Strickland did a tech stuff podcast about it. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about that, there, we have lots of information about that, but I think, I think ASMR is slightly connected to some of Reich's ideas. Okay. Um, and Lowen's idea, his bio 
bioenergetic ideas was more along the lines of, of exercises that would loosen armor and release energy. And, you know, that gets to like, uh, I take uh, a lot of yoga classes and I know Robert does as well. I, I, I'd like to hear what Robert's opinions are on these things, but there is essentially like some part of yoga that's, that has these same ideas, right? That if you do these particular exercises and you stretch your body in particular ways that it's going to align your mind and body together. Yeah, I'm not a yoga practitioner myself. Th- that's another one of those things that just at a, an, at an intuitive level, it seems to make sense. I, yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen any research that makes me think that there's a scientific basis for believing that, but it, it certainly seems plausible. It could be true. Given my experience with it, it certainly feels like it works. Yeah. Um, uh, but then you have people like, uh, Reich's follower Chavez, who's in his paper says that you can see the, uh, orgone contraction expansion concept of armor in all organisms. And he says this includes everything from amoeba and protozoans to human beings. Okay, well, I think now it's time to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to get into the orgone energy itself. And we're back. So, all right, we've talked about his psychological ideas. Let's get into orgone. Right. What this, are we talking this is about the, This here? is the big, the big tuna in the basket, as mm-hmm. I might say. Mm. Orgone energy... It seems to be this is where Reich stepped out of psychoanalysis and tried to bridge some gap between his psychoanalytic theories and physics. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to my understanding, not having any kind of degrees or legitimacy in physics. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be uh, an utter credentialist. I wouldn't say you need to have a degree in physics to, to do good work in physics, but you do need to get the kind of results and to formulate your theories in a way that other people can test to see if there's anything to them. Right. So he takes this idea from his earlier psychological theories and extrapolates it that the orgasm expresses a primal mass free energy slash force of life that he calls orgone. Uh And as I mentioned before, it's, it's weirdly like the force from star Wars. I wonder if George Lucas read any Reikian literature before he, he wrote star Wars. So hold on. Does it surround us? Yeah. Does it it bind us? The natural world. Mm -hmm. It does bind us. Uh I don't think that uh, Reich believed that you could like, you know, levitate starships with your mind with orgone, but maybe he would have gotten to that point at, you know, if he, if he, he'd studied a little further. Yeah. He did think that it was expressed in a number of phenomena, including the Aurora Borealis. He thought the Aurora Borealis was caused by orgone accumulated in the atmosphere. So he's not just positing a life force of some kind, as many people have done, that's present in the bodies of animals and living organisms. Yeah. I mean, you think of uh, mesmerism and, and old uh, concepts of animal electricity from before we discovered that you know, the electricity oh, in yeah. animals is just like the electricity it's in, very... in the outside world. There, there have been a lot of concepts throughout history of there, there's some kind of force in living things. Uh, but, but he's taking this and saying, no, 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 it's a force in the universe and you can see it outside of bodies. Yeah. I mean, to your point, it's very similar to the Chinese concept of chi, the Japanese idea of ki, the Hindu prana, and even some Kabbalistic ideas, right? So this, this binding energy slash force thing isn't something that's particularly new, but yes, you're right. He 
believed that you could actually observe it physically under a microscope. Uh, he called this bions. They're particles that he claimed he saw blue particles. So this is, uh, we mentioned at the top, these are sort of the midichlorines of, of orgone. Yeah. Um, these little, uh, little things he saw, what, in the blood vessels of the body or something? I'm not sure what he was looking at under the microscope, actually. Um, and, and who knows, you know, he, but he thought because of this blue quality that orgone was responsible for lots of blue things. So for instance, he thought the reason why the sky was blue was because of orgone. Um, and he extrapolates out from this general theory of this life force into the technologies that we're going to talk about now, which are his organ accumulators and cloud busters that you could manipulate organ in such a way to receive beneficial effects from it. Yeah. Okay. So let's say that you are a patient of Wilhelm Reich mm-hmm. and he, he decides that, well, you've got, you've got an organ problem. <laughs> what, what are we yeah. going to do about it? <clears throat> so, uh, the, he says you should sit inside my orgone accumulator. And what this is. Pray tell, what does it look like? Well, I've actually seen one because they're at the Organon Museum. Nice. Um, but, uh, we also have a picture here in front of us. They're basically like these phone booth sized devices with like a door, uh, that he designed. And the idea was that they would harness orgone. And he believed that you could use it to cure everything from neurosis to cancer. This is, this is where the cure for cancer idea came in. This is where your flag should go up. Uh, whenever you hear somebody saying, Hey, look, I can cure cancer. Yeah. It, 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 right. There wasn't a ton of evidence that he was doing any such thing. Um, the actual accumulators, I guess they're kind of like Faraday cages. Like they're, so it's alternating layers of wood and steel on the outside. And then on the inside, they're lined with these layers of organic materials, like wood and cotton and paper. Like I remember seeing, like you could actually see the layers when you got in the thing, like, um, there was like stuffed paper and cotton inside. And, um, he, th- the idea here was they were alternating organic and inorganic compounds. And he thought that, uh, orgone energy would oscillate around inside this box because of the way that orgone interacted with different inorganic and organic, uh, materials. Yeah. Wasn't the idea that the organic materials would suck the orgone in yeah. and then the metal materials would reflect it back inward yeah. so that it would get trapped. It would be kind of like a greenhouse effect in the box for orgone. Yeah. And, and, um, so this is, you know, you're probably listening and going, well, that just sounds plain crazy, right? 1941, he goes to Albert Einstein and he's like, Hey, I've got this idea for this orgone accumulator thing. I think it's pretty, you know, on the mark. Let's test this out. And Einstein's excited about it at first. He's like, Oh, wow. That like, this is really interesting. Uh, but Einstein's assistant, Leopold Infeld believed that the orgone accumulators were producing heat basically because of the different temperature gradients in the room that they were in, right? Uh-huh. So he points this out to Einstein, and Einstein's like, oh, yeah, you're a total fraud. Uh, go away, Reich. <laughs> and uh, he rejects this theory completely. Yeah, I-, I wanted to read a section. I mentioned earlier that documentary, that sort of pro-Wilhelm Reich documentary. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I want to present this as sort of the mode of thinking about how they dealt with the results of their cancer treatment via orgone accumulators. Mm. So here, here's the quote. Because his results with cancer mice were so promising, Reich decided to test the effects of orgone radiation on human subjects. He constructed orgone energy accumulators that were large enough for a person to sit in, and in 1942, 
He began experimental treatments with cancer patients. They were all terminal cases. Reich promised no cure and charged no money. Over a period of time, the patients showed marked improvement, relief of pain, healthier blood condition, weight gain, and the shrinkage and elimination of tumors. Despite these positive results, the patients died, reinforcing Reich's convention that cancer is a bioenergetic shrinking following emotional resignation and that the tumors themselves are not the disease, but merely a local manifestation of a deeper systemic disorder. Hmm. Okay. I, I think it's funny there the way they kind of just brush aside the fact that they all died. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we were talking about this a little bit before we came in a recording, I guess like for me, if those people were getting a certain kind of like psychological well-being and contentment from this, whether it worked or not, like if it was just a placebo, you know, I, I wouldn't begrudge them that. Well, but I mean, the question is, are are they being, um, it, it, are they being misled about their chances of being helped by this? And right. are they being, uh, or is this being substituted for a treatment that would have a higher success rate? Yeah. Well, uh, you, do you know who owned an organ accumulator actually built one himself? I don't know. Tell me. You, you think that I'm about to say Ben Bolin, but I'm no, not. No, no, no. You're going to say, you're going to say Kenny Rogers. No, close. Elvis. William S. Burroughs. Oh, okay. William S. Burroughs had one and he used to write in it. Uh, and my understanding is that Burroughs, uh, uh, thought that the, like, he, he wanted the effects of the orgone accumulator to help him with his heroin addiction. <laughs> and that, like, the, the energies that were created in there helped him to be more creative. Uh huh. You know, when he was writing. Uh, but of course, his, uh, Reich's theory about orgone wasn't just static. He continued to sort of update it with new discoveries. Oh, you yeah. might hear discoveries in air quotes there. Yeah, so um, then he updates it later on into, he says that there's another form. It's sort of like the Force again. There's the light side and the dark side. So there's a Sith Orgone. There's a Sith Orgone, and it's deadly Orgone radiation. He identifies this as, uh, de- he uses the acronym D-O-R for it, and he saw this as being kind of like the antimatter version of Orgone, and it's responsible for all environmental degradation. Hmm. Uh, and that this kind of Orgone could actually be contaminated by radiation. And this is another instance where it feels like he's influenced by what's going on at the time with nuclear testing and the use of the atom bomb during World War II. And he's he's either incorporating that into his theories somehow or he's reacting to it because of, again, let's get back to his general ideas to stop fascism, right? Right. Well, I mean, this sounds a lot like one of the plots of those Atomic Age horror sci-fi movies. You know, right. There's, yeah. a, there's an atomic test that contaminates some kind of force or energy and creates a, a monster. Right. Yeah, like giant ants or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, he said that the results of DOR were actually desertification. So... He ups and moves his whole family from Rangeley, Maine to Tucson, Arizona in 1954. And the idea is that he's going to combat the desert with a new invention that he has that's going to harness Oregon to fight D.O.R. off. Um, and he wrote it hadn't rained in Tucson in five years. That's not true. <laughs> like if you go back and you look at 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 uh, National Weather Service records of the time, it had rained in Tucson. But yeah. but so part of his uh, writings are, you know, Tucson's the ideal place to do this. It hasn't rained in five years. I'm going to f- fix this desert. I love what you said that he was going to square off against the desert. I'm just imagining mm-hmm. him standing on a sand dune looking out across the desert well, and saying, I will defeat you. This is kind of um 
you know, we were talking about the, the Kate Bush video earlier. That's kind of it. It's mm-hmm. like him and his son with a cloud buster against the desert. Well, this leads to the last thing we're going to talk about, which is Reich's biggest final technological innovation, which is the cloud buster. Right. Now, yeah. uh, people have long wanted to control the weather. That's obvious. Mm-hmm. You know, people did religious rituals to control the weather. Uh, people have experimented with cloud seeding and hail cannons. Cloud seeding maybe sort of works. It, it's not clear exactly yeah. how well it works. Hail you guys cannons. did an episode about it for forward thinking. Yeah, right? forward thinking just recently did a, did some weather modification episodes. Hail cannons are these things that send shock waves at the clouds to make it not hail. Mm. Um, I don't think that there's any scientific evidence that these things work. I think but these were theories that were floating around at, during Reich's time as well. Like the, uh, oh, cloud, yeah. cloud seeding was definitely like being thought about. Oh, yeah. Um, and so this was kind of his answer to that, right? Uh-huh. Um, and the idea was that he would harness orgone energy and redirect it to manipulate the weather. So remember, he thought the atmosphere, the sky being blue, the aurora borealis, all these things were affected by orgone. But the idea here was that he would mainly use it to grow crops. So uh, the cloud buster would dispel DOR. So when you watch that that documentary, did they show cloud busters in it? Yeah. Okay. They did. So like I, uh, they have cloud busters at Organon. So when I went there and visited, I, you know, got to see it up close and personal. And it's. And they presented it as if it unquestionably works. <laughs> well, there's some dispute about that. Although there are, <laughs> there were other people that weren't Reich that said that it was working for them. Well, I mean, this is a thing that comes up whenever you're talking about weather modification attempts is like, what if you do something and then, uh, you do yeah. something to try to make it rain and sometime over the next day or two, it does rain. Yeah. Wait, did it work? I mean, you could say, Oh, it worked, but maybe it was just going to rain anyway. But as Kate Bush says, every time it rains, the sun's coming out. <laughs> I still, I'm still like, my mind's blown. No, I've got to go listen to this. We'll listen to it afterwards. Okay. Um, so the cloud busters basically look like this. They're like these, um, series of hollow metal pipes. They kind of look like a giant pan flute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You're right on. And they're bound. Those pipes are bound together. And then there's cables that run out of them. And Reich would either run them right into the ground or into water, into the, um, the lake there at Organon. Uh, I don't know where, where he was putting them in Tucson. The, the cables themselves. But um, uh, the idea was that he would aim the series of pipes upward at the sky and it would, the water would attract orgon and draw it up through the cable and then out through the pipes and the pipes would shoot orgon into the sky and it would create clouds in their wake. This would subsequently lead to rain. So he does these experiments in Tucson Tucson does experience heavy rain during his experiments. So just as you said, you know, there's kind of this, well, look, it worked, you know, and of course for him, he's like, yeah, I've got some tiger repellent to sell you. Then it gets, this is where Reich stuff really goes off the rails for me personally. Uh, in May of 19, hold on. It didn't before I, you know, there was always a small part of me that was like, especially like when I visited Oregon that was kind of like, what if there's something to this cloud busting? <laughs> like it'd be kind of cool if like I go up to the cloud buster and I can feel the ripples of orgon like, uh-huh. like around it. Like, Oh, it, it works. Did you feel them? No. Did you feel I, the sacred vibrations? There was nothing. <laughs> there was nothing. There was a nice wooded estate. We took a nice walk in the woods. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> um, May of 1953, Reich claims that he used a cloud buster to drive off two UFOs. 
So now we're entering X-Files territory. In fact, I was shocked that there wasn't an X-Files episode about Reich. Right. He thought that UFOs were actually influenced by orgone energy and that the idea was that cloudbusters could be used like a space gun to fend them off. I, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of crazy. There isn't a lot about it. Um And there also isn't a lot about like what he actually meant by UFOs, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, who knows if he thought they were alien spaceships or he thought it was something else, but he clearly thought like the phenomena was connected to Oregon and that cloudbusters would make it stop. Yeah. Um, this, uh, now I, I hope I have my timeline straight, but this, uh, early 1950s era, this was sort of UFO fever, right? Yeah. After World War II was when people started really seeing UFOs. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, we'd have to consult Ben, Matt and Noel on this because they're really our in-house experts. But yeah, I want to say like, when, when did the Roswell incident uh, purportedly happen? I just looked it up. It was 1947. Okay. So that's a good amount of time for that to kind of enter popular consciousness and, Uh and him to be aware of it, especially because he's in Arizona and it's, it's probably something that's being talked about. Yeah. Well, he goes back to Maine in 1954, uh, with the Cloudbuster. Farmers in Maine were having trouble growing their blueberry crops. So they paid Reich. So this, okay. Now we know he made some money, at least off of this. Uh-huh. They paid Reich to produce rain to help their crops. And these farmers said, it was successful. There was an article in the Bangor Daily News from the time in which they interviewed some of these farmers and they said, I don't know how he's doing it, but it works. Like, it's raining, my crops are better. So, there you go. Yeah. Um, but their accounts differ slightly from the official National Weather Service records for Bangor around that time. So, like, the days that they said it rained were different from when it, you know, the, the actual governmental records of when it rained. Now, again, I can see where conspiracy theorists would dive right into that and say, well, you know, of course the governmental records were altered or something like that. <laughs> but, um, so the Cloudbuster is really kind of the apex of Reich's, uh, orgone technology, uh, movement, right? Yeah. Um, because of what we mentioned earlier with the whole FDA thing. Yeah. Somebody moved an orgone accumulator across state lines. He goes to prison and dies in prison. Yeah. So anyway, for me, the whole story about Wilhelm Reich raises several interesting questions. One of them is uh, when it's legitimate for the state authorities or for really any authorities, maybe even just professional authorities like uh, psychiatric or professional organizations yeah. to step in and interfere with what somebody is claiming as scientific research or medical therapy. I mean, there right. are extreme cases where... You can say, okay, what if somebody's selling flu shots out the back of their van and they're full of Drano? Right. That, that seems pretty obvious. This person is committing a crime yeah. and, uh, and the government should step in and stop them and take them to jail. Um, what if somebody is just selling people a cancer treatment that there's no evidence makes them better? Yeah. Like, is, is like that the- a case where the government should step in and say, you can't do that? Or I don't know. I feel like that's a tough case. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, in the Reich example, unless there's like evidence or I'm missing something completely from the story, maybe there's listeners out there who are steeped much deeper in, in Reich history and lore than I am. But it, it does seem fairly unjust to me to um, put this guy in prison for two years and also sort of a waste of, of taxpayer dollars to, you know, run a trial and everything and keep him in prison. Yeah. Solely because he said that he 
could cure cancer with this telephone box. In what way is the person being honest with people? Yeah. Uh, what, so it, it seems to me that it would make a difference if somebody says, Hey, I've got this experimental treatment. It's not proven. You know, you, you really should be informed about what your options are, but uh, you can yeah. try this if you're interested. Uh, versus somebody saying, I'm a doctor and let me tell you all the other stuff they're going to do for you at the hospital. It's bunk. You need to get into my box. Well, I don't. And that's the thing that's going to save your life and give me all your money. I mean, those do seem like kind of different. Yeah. Although I, I would, situations to me, I, I do want to make clear, like, I don't know necessarily that that's how Reich was portraying it. Either. No, I know. I mean, yeah. I'm asking like, it's <laughs> yeah. hard to know what level of, uh, of, it, it, what sense he was leveling with people and in yeah. what sense he was overstating what kind of results they could expect well, or overstating the uh, proven effectiveness of his methods. So, well, there's two things here, like like his license as a medical doctor should have been called into question if that were the case. And I'm not sure if he was licensed as a medical doctor in the United States. He may have earned a degree in Europe. But I don't know that he necessarily, you know, filed the right paperwork or, or took the right accreditation yeah. to keep that in the United States. Now, obviously, we do make a distinction between medical procedures and other kinds of pseudoscience because right. you can the hail cannons I talked about earlier. Yeah, there. I don't think that people who are experts in the field of weather think that there's anything to these. There's no evidence that they work, but you can sell them. Yeah, you, sure. You're fine. Nobody's going to take you to jail for selling a hail cannon. Right. As long as it's not hurting anybody. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or the environment, I guess. But so then there's the other the, the other side of this, too, is like, you know, we mentioned earlier that there were patients who had cancer who uh, went underwent orgone accumulator therapy mm-hmm. and died. Right. Well, it said that all of them died. They, yeah. they claimed uh, they though they claimed that the thing that that stuck in their minds was that they had pain relief right uh, or they said they had pain relief i mean then again those those are things that can be affected by psychosomatic sure issues. yeah there maybe a placebo effect so i guess the question is how much of how much of it was their responsibility to be informed about what the therapies were that were available yeah. you know and or whether like there are certain instances even today where there are people who say, you know what, like traditional medicine isn't doing what I want it to do. I'm going to try this thing. I don't care if it's real or not. As long as it makes me feel better, uh-huh. that's OK with me. Well, this is another uh, thing that's interesting about alternative medicines is that very often they are less unpleasant than the conventional medical procedure. Oh yeah. Like right, if you've yeah. got cancer and the doctor's saying, look, the the best outcome for you statistically is going to be to undergo an aggressive round of chemotherapy that's going to make you very it's going to put you in a lot of pain and make you feel sick and make you miserable. Yeah. But you're going to have a much higher percentage chance of surviving this cancer if you undergo it versus an alternative healer who's saying like, look, I can give you some massages and you can take some vitamin C. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's going to help. I mean, it's obvious that one is a much less daunting course of treatment. Oh, than yeah. the other. Yeah, certainly. Well, I mean, I, that's very specific to cancer. I'm curious about, I wonder if, uh, Reich did this treatment with people who were suffering from something that wasn't as extreme as cancer mm-hmm. physically. Um, and what, what kind of results he had with it. So this, again, this is kind of like where I would love it if, uh, the scientific discipline would sort of dive into these ideas, not necessarily orgone, you know what I mean? But just like some, some of the general ideas behind, uh, 
the orgasm release uh, having to do with the, the 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 physical manifestation of trauma. Oh yeah, I know what you're saying. Like, it, obviously, I don't think there's anything to orgone. I mean, right. that just seems kind of it, it's something that's pretty funny. Now. What if we're but, wrong? What if like 200 <laughs> years from now? People, he like, was right. He was right. All and orgone. society is totally based around orgone and people listen back on this podcast and they go, what barbarians? Well, please judge me, future people. I, I welcome it. But no, what you say, I think, does have some merits because there may have been other ideas, maybe some of his ideas in psychoanalysis that have a germ of truth about them. Right. And uh, and I know you think that may be the case with some of these things, right? Yeah. I, I mean, for me personally, like I, I, I'm old, much older now than I was when I went to Oregon on. Uh, so I don't necessarily have as much hope for cloud busting as I used to. But but yeah, I, I do believe that there's a certain amount of connection between uh, emotional trauma and physical um, ailments. Yeah. So, so you think his thing about, uh, deep tissue massages for treating psychological disturbances might, might have a, an effect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm willing to believe. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. that's a I thing want to believe. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing that could be studied. Yeah. I, I do too. Um, and, um, and I'm, and, you know, I'm obviously curious about like the, the, the tangents that went off, you know, bioenergetics is what his daughter was doing, all those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, he made such a radical leap from that to here's this space gun that'll shoot down UFOs uh-huh. that it it's problematic. And I, and, and I think that it's problematic in reverse for his somewhat plausible theories too. Right. In that like they were tainted by the, the, the craziness around cloud busting and subsequently, people just wanted to stay as far away from it as possible in the discipline if they're going to be taken seriously. I totally agree. I think this is a thing that can happen in professional disciplines where, like, what if there is an unconventional hypothesis yeah. that is primarily pursued by somebody who is widely regarded as a quack? And then right, somebody yeah. later comes back and says, well, of course, their work was bad. Their methodology was bad. But there might be something to the hypothesis. I want to check it out and do a do some better methodology on it. Yeah. Uh, there, there still might be some resistance in the field, right? People might yeah. look at you askance for pursuing that, uh, that quack direction that somebody took in the past. Yeah. I mean, I was telling you a story that when I was in graduate school, one of my, um, peers in grad school wanted to do his dissertation on memetics, mm-hmm. um, and, and memes The um, you know, we, we've covered it before Susan Blackmore and Richard Dawkins theories about memes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was treated like, like he was an utter idiot by the department. And like, not just in the sense of like his dissertation and the work he was doing, which as far as I could tell, like he was, he was doing his due diligence in terms of like his research and writing and all that stuff. Uh-huh. But just like, e- even just in the everyday classroom, you know, like professors were just like, Oh, this guy, yeah, you know, like if he would try to bring memetics into any kind of conversation related to a rhetorical theory or something yeah. like that. Um, so I can see why the same thing would probably happen if a psychology Our field has student judged that not worth talking about. Yeah. Like if some psychology student was like, all right, I don't want to like really test out some of this, uh, Reichian theory stuff. You know, I could see why they would be, uh, ostracized. So, but I do have to say too, I mean, what do you think would have happened if Reich didn't pass away in prison? Where would this go next? I know what you think. Yeah. You know, tell what us, tell us, Chris. I mean, I, so I brought this up earlier. It, it, I, I think that, like, it's another L. Ron Hubbard situation. Yeah. I think that he was at the beginning stages of establishing his own religion in a way mm-hmm. based around Orgone and with 
technological and scientific principles that aren't accepted by mainstream community, the, the mainstream community, but that are accepted by the people within his yeah. religion. I don't know that Reich necessarily would have called it a religion, right? Like he, he but it, it does have a it certain could have functioned like theological one. basis to it. They, they, yeah, they <laughs> had the ideology, they had the compound, they had yeah. a, the, right. If you listen to Reich's recordings, he has a sense of uh, persecution and otherness. And he know? was a very charismatic guy. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I have one of his books that I bought when I was at Argonon. It's called Shut Up Little Man. And it's basically like a, a long rant about how everybody is wrong about present day circumstances and they should listen to him because he has the answer. And partly it's compelling because the things that he's ranting about uh, people having wrong, they did have wrong. Like, you know, society was dysfunctional at the time. Uh-huh. That's he wasn't wrong about that. But I don't know that his answers were necessarily the place to go. Okay, well, I guess that wraps it up for Orgone Energy and Wilhelm Reich today. But if you want to get in touch with us about any of the topics we've talked about today, you can find us on social media where our handle is Blow the Mind. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook. Where else? We are on Tumblr. Uh, we are also on Periscope every Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time. Which Unless we're, we're not, and we'll let you know. Yeah, but we're actually right about to run to go do that. Yeah. We're recording on a Friday morning. You can also find all of our stuff, our blog posts, our podcasts, our videos, and everything else at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Oh, and hey, if you are really like steeped in this Reikian stuff, because I've heard that you can recreate Orgone accumulators and cloudbusters from blueprints that are available out there. Uh-huh. If you're one of those and you have access to these, I would love it if you sent it to us directly. Uh, and the way that you can do that is by, you know, and, and for any other needs, if you want to send us a, a message or an email or anything like that, write us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank <laughs> you.